Hello and welcome to the latest podcast edition of The Ordinary Elite with me, John McGovern, and my fellow solicitor advocate, Mike Daly. Uh, we're recording this podcast in the, the Govan Gallows here the day before uh, the coronation of King Charles III. And uh, Mike, I notice there's a distinct lack of uh, bunting and union jacks here this morning. I'm just wondering what's going on. Well, apologies, John. I think I think the, the, the bunting must have got lost in the post. Um, you do have to pinch yourself, don't you, and think we're, we're about to have the most decadent, self-indulgent uh, party for uh, King Charles III. And I mean, I, I had written about this in the, the, my Glasgow Evening Times column the other week, and I did think it was it was perhaps as surreal, if not more surreal, than Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Um, I don't know if you remember the that novel. Um, in the novel, Tweedledum and Tweedledee are reciting <laughs> um, to Alice uh, the wall, the walrus and the carpenter poem. So the time has come, the walrus said. The talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, cabbages and kings. Now, what is more surreal than that? Well, an elderly gentleman uh, being uh, <laughs> travelling in a golden carriage oh, through the streets of London, um, being anointed with holy oil, <clears throat> sitting on, I think it's the Edward chair in Westminster Abbey, which has got the controversial um, stone of destiny, uh, the, 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 scone of, the stone of Scone, mm -hmm. um, which I think was believed to have been Jacob's pillow. So, you know, it goes back into biblical mythology uh, as being very, very significant. I saw Humza doing a kind of river dance round it this week. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that'll make the history books. Well, he, he kind of walked up and he, and he did a little turn and, and I didn't know if he was going to break dance. Um, I thought it was like a scene. It was like Manuel from 42 hours. <laughs> it was so respectful for a lump of concrete. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and then there's a stone. <laughs> then there's a stone. So, but, but in all seriousness, um, you know, Charles is 74 years old. Uh, he's got this crown of jewels about to be placed on his barnet. Um, and as I've said, he's going to get ferried about <laughs> in a golden coach. And surely that's got to be as wacky as Alice in Wonderland. Well, it's, it's, you're right. I mean, it's a good analogy. It's so surreal. But of course, you know, brass tax here, it's costing £250 million, Mike. Uh, neither of us are constitutional lawyers, but so far as I can gather, it's not, it's not legally required. He acceded to the throne when the Queen died. And there hasn't been another coronation. The only other coronation there has been in Europe where there are a number of you know royal families, Spain, yeah. Scandinavia, I think Holland, D Denmark. The only other coronation there has been in Europe since 1906 was the Queen's in 1953. So this this is just for me, you know, self-indulgent as you say. And if you think, I mean, we're sitting here in Govan this morning and if the cost is £250 million, I work that out, Mike, at approximately uh, £40 per citizen of the UK. Yeah. This is costing. And, you know, and if you look out the window here and you look at, you know, some of the, the kind of uh, houses around here and uh, the people that live here, you know, say a family of four, family of five in yeah. Govan, 
if you yeah. said to them, well, we'll give you, <clears throat> instead of the coronation, we'll give you £200. Which, yeah. which would you rather, the coronation or £200? I'm pretty certain it's a no-brainer, Mike. I, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think uh, it's an astonishing. I mean, it's interesting you talk about two hundred and fifty million, John, because much of the press was given estimates of a hundred million, um, which is now thought to be quite conservative. Mm -hmm. um, but it just goes to show you there is no kind of real official, you know, um, valuation of what this is really costing the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about this. The king himself has a personal fortune of two billion pounds. Yes, so it's in, it's in, an incredible amount of public money to be spent, perhaps at the most inopportune time, uh, given the impact of Brexit, given the impact of inflation, you know, uh, double digits, and and people not being able to afford food or to pay their gas and electricity bills. I mean, it's just I, I think I think it's a real PR disaster now. Mm. You had made reference to the fact that legally it wasn't even necessary. And it's interesting, when I looked at this, and coronation events, you know, um, were big going back a thousand years uh, across Europe. And actually, I think they came from the, the, the fact that kings had to show to, you know, to the great and the good that they were the true successor. Because you had various pretenders, you know, in, in royal courts that wanted to, 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 to seize the crown. But as you rightly say, that disappeared as a legal step. So that that is why there's not been a coronation in the monarchies across Europe or indeed other parts of the world. <clears throat> and what we're going to have uh, on Saturday is this super expensive event with gold, with jewels, um, and it's also a big role for the Church of England. Let's not forget this. And I think that was part of the reason for coronations, which was to also give the church a leg up in terms of the whole power arrangement. So the Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, isn't it, plays a, a central role where he anoints um, King Charles III's uh, baronet, mm. his royal lead, with holy oil. And I think the holy oil, I was reading about this, I think they got some olive uh, bushes uh, from, you know, from... Well, Tesco. No, not from Tesco. <clears throat> I think from, you know, um, the Holy Land um, in, in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, it was turned into oil. It was blessed. <clears throat> and it's going to be uh, put on Charles's head. And at that bit of the ceremony, I understand it's going to be confidential so there's a there's like a curtain pulled uh not the wizard of oz isn't it there's, there's a curtain that's going to be pulled over at king charles the third while he's anointed by the archbishop uh, and but here's the thing about that what that signals and this is this is all in my humble opinion which is why this is also wrong is the the anointment with holy oil signals the conferment of god's grace upon the sovereign. And so really what we're saying here is um, this has come from above. Uh, you are, you know, not like an ordinary person. You are above all of this. You're above the law. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> they are above the law, Mike, in my opinion. I say that as a lawyer. Uh, and if we look at it, you know, if, if we I mean, ignore the pageantry of it all for a moment, and actually look 
at the bubble that the royal family uh, inhabit, and and they're in a bubble. They're in they're above the law uh, in this kind of uh, bubble because uh, they don't. Their tax arrangements are unique. Yes, and uh, basically, uh, what happens is that uh, they don't pay. Uh, corporation tax and they don't pay capital gains tax. Right. So there's two main sources of income that the royal households receive, which is the sovereign grant, which replaced the civil list about 10 years ago, which I'll come to in a minute, uh, if you allow me. But the, their main, historically, their main sources of income have been the Duchies of Lancaster and the Duchies of Cornwall, yep. which are uh, managed, and I say that in inverted commas, made by uh, the monarch and the heir to the throne. And uh, Basically, the two of them can keep the profits from the management of those two estates, and those profits uh, are not subject to any form of taxation whatsoever. Wow! Uh, so any other business, mate, any other estates that are managed, you know, and and and, and the, uh, you know, would would if you sold an asset, an asset on that estate, you know, some kind of capital expenditure, you would have to pay tax on any gain. You clearly have to pay corporation tax on your profits. They don't. So effectively, that places them above the law in a taxation sense. The sovereign uh, grant, which replaced the civil list, I mean, th th this is just mind-blowing in my opinion because every year Parliament until 2011, 2012 it might have been, mm. had to debate how much basically the royal family would receive. And yeah. there, was a, there, was a, there was a legislative passage, Mike, and there was a debate about it. Yeah. And uh, between 2001 and 2011, the amount that they received was fixed at 7.9 million. It then went up in 2012 to around 13 million. Now, Prince Charles was clearly unhappy with this. Right? We don't know what happens to that money. I mean, there was a civil list and all the kind of lackeys and you know the parasites would get their money, the Prince Edwards and all these people. But it wasn't enough for them. So those... Two Etonian masters of poverty creation, Osborne and Cameron, decided to pass the Sovereign Grant Act. And what that did, Mike, was linked uh, the uh, profits from the Crown Estates, uh -huh. which are land that was given by the monarch uh, George III, I think, in the 18th century to us because he couldn't manage it. He yeah. was on the verge of yeah. bankruptcy. Yeah. And in return, he would get an annuity. That's how long ago... These have been in public ownership nearly, you know, what, three three centuries almost. So this is you know, over three centuries owned by the public. Owned by the yeah. public, but the profits from the management of those estates, uh, instead of the civil list, now are paid fifteen percent of those profits. It was agreed in twenty twelve, I think it was, are paid to the the the, the monarch, yeah. the, the king or the queen. Now that Mike, in the first year of that scheme resulted in an increase from 13 million uh, to around uh, 22 million. And last year, <coughs> this was 88.2 million. Wow. So they've gone from in 2011, yeah. receiving effectively in the civil list provisions, 7.9 million to that being abolished by Cameron and Osborne. And there'd be no review in the legislation. It's not debated. I mean, this was all came about because there were too many Republican speeches getting made in the House of Commons. Mm. The royal family weren't happy about that. And basically now, last year, they received 88.2 million in substitution of the civil list. 
What happens to that money? We don't know. You don't need to account for it. There's no auditing process externally. The National Audit Office has got no jurisdiction over the royal family. Wow. wow. So we, 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 you know, they'll, they'll pay. I mean, for example, presumably some of that money was used to pay a girl in America that Prince Andrew never met. You know, she got eleven million. We don't know. We, we just don't, don't know. know. And and uh, again, it's a situation, Mike, where yeah. they're above the law. We can't do that. I, I don't disagree with you, John. I mean, I I, I, I mean, I hadn't quite realised the magnitude of of those figures and uh, that eighty eight million might's predicted to quadruple in the next ten years because well, of wind farm investments on the Crown Estates. Well I tell you if it's you astonishing. Think, if you think about it, uh, so the amount of money that's went into the royal family, in addition to all the other things that they have. Uh, their income essentially, Mike, is completely and utterly almost public money. Yeah. Through either the uh, Duchy of Lancaster, yeah. Duchy of Cornwall Estates or the Sovereign Grant. What I was going to say, John, that, 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 that just really struck me as incredible is that from what you're saying, that income increased by almost tenfold. Elevenfold. Um, <laughs> from, 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 from 2012 onwards. So it's all, you know, it's not that far off 100 million pounds. Uh, you know what's interesting? Um, I watched, there was a video that was on social media that was put out by the Labour MP for Norwich South, uh, Clive Lewis, yeah. uh, Member of Parliament. And I thought it was actually quite powerful and, you know, it was fairly short. And the point he was making is, you know, most people don't care about the coronation. I think I think it's even higher in Scotland. I think the figures are showing something like, um, you know, you know, 70% of uh, people in Scotland really couldn't care mm. about the coronation. But the point that Clive Lewis MP was making was important. You should care because this affects you. This is public money. But it's more than that. The point he made was this, John. The, the royal family have, in recent years, managed to wangle exemptions from 160 pieces of legislation. Mm. Things like animal welfare, yeah. workers' rights that don't yeah. apply yeah. to the royal household, tax exemptions that you've talked about, and yeah. Uh, yeah. all of these things. Meantime, King Charles III sits on two billion just as a personal uh, amount, there'll be other sources of money. You know, to me, what I would say is that the monarchy in this country, I think they sit at a pinnacle of an archaic system of privilege and patronage through a discredited honour system. And I think their influence is embedded throughout our system of government and indeed throughout our legal system. If you think about it, we need to raise proceedings, whether it's in the Court of Session in Scotland or whether it's in the you know, High Court um, or, or, or indeed the Superior, the Supreme Court in uh, England is done in the name of the Crown. It's done mm -hmm. in the name of uh, the King. Mm -hmm. So all, you know, our whole legal system, our political system is completely shackled mm -hmm. to the royal family mm. and the monarchy. Mm. And this, I guess, must explain why. Um, it, well, it probably explains its longe longevity mm -hmm. because it's in with the bricks and mortar. <clears throat> and also the ability to really um, uh, remove any kind of serious opposition to its ongoing existence through using the power of patronage, using the power whether it's through you know political means um, or, or other means, and and this is why we we end up having a situation where tomorrow we're going to have, as you say, about a quarter of a billion pounds of public money spent on a jamboree. 
Yeah. The the uh, you know the the point might you make there about the uh, I mean some people call it a veto on on legislation. This this when you dig deep into this and nobody does really you know nobody really mm-hmm. you know it's all just you know other the head of state and all this kind of stuff. But if the government is proposing legislation, so clearly once a bill has passed Parliament, yes, they can't withhold royal assent. That's you know the royal prerogative and all that. But prior to a bill effectively being published, yes. the government lawyers, if they think that uh, the the clauses or the provisions of any bill will uh, conflict with the private interests, yes. the private interests of the royal family then they have to take what's called uh, counsel from the royal family. That is to say, they have to enter, you know, dialogue with the royal family on how they, as the government's lawyers, feel that the provisions of any bill might impact the private interests of these people. So that, that, so that again, Mike, yeah. utterly... I mean, imagine, you know, a bill going through this... I mean, you've we've both kind of helped to draft legislation, you especially. Imagine a bill going through the Scottish Parliament, yeah. you know, and, and it's proposed to be published, but you know, we'll just phone John McGovern first and see if see if there's anything in it that you know. Th- this is why they're above the law. This might not un- be a might not be a bad idea, but I mean, <laughs> but the thing is, certainly of bills of late. But, but you make a very serious point, John, and I, and I do think um, what's interesting is you know when the Queen was alive, I don't even remember there was the sort of the scandal of Prince Charles as he was then. I think it was the Black Spider scandal so he was scribbling on uh, uh you know westminster bills in in you know black ink various no you can't have this you need to do this yeah. da, 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 we need this exemption blah 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 and that got out into the public domain and it was it, it was a revelation because people hadn't quite appreciated uh, uh you know as you've described that the, the monarchy and indeed members of the royal family get to veto uh, legislation of the UK, and they get to le- to veto legislation of the Scottish Parliament, and all of this happens effectively in a fairly secret kind of. Right. Opa- opaque there's no, there's no there's no record of it, Mike. There's no it's not there's no uh, requirement for it to be recorded in any way, shape, or form. On average, since 1970, I read this week, there have been four <laughs> interventions a year on average. You know, uh, so yeah, I mean. It's it's they enjoy privilege that no one else should enjoy, and or no one else sorry yeah. does enjoy. Uh, and I, I I remember you know I, I've always kind of been a, a Republican, and my, my Republican uh, kind of uh, belief or the basis for for being that was it was never really deep seated. It was just the the kind of first principles that look, everyone's equal in the eyes of the law. Sure. You know. Uh, that everyone's entitled, you know, hereditary kind of power is to me anathema. Yeah. You know, and 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 it and it kind of always has been. You know that that and but then when you actually look into it, which I did, we've clearly done it. You know, for for the purposes of this podcast, it just brings me right back to first principles. Yeah. That this is just wrong. This, this is, is wrong. And, the, and these people are enjoying privilege that no one else in this country. In fact, you could argue that let's say there was an organisation. I mean, because the 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 Crown Estates turn over about fifteen billion pounds a year. Yeah. Right. The Duchy of Lancaster and the Duchy of Cornwall's combined profits that go in that go to the royal family is forty-two million pounds a year. That's in addition to the sovereign grant. So you know, 
you could actually argue that if any other company, for example, was profiting £42 million, uh, but didn't pay corporation tax, didn't pay gains tax, uh, you know, you would say, well, you're, you're actually acting illegally. You know, this is unlawful what you're, you know, you're doing. And but this is this is this has been facilitated for for the royal family. Well, it, it's all. It, I think not only has it been facilitated, John, but it's also been something throughout, indeed, the centuries, um, has been very carefully managed. Now, I can think Absolutely, back. Yeah. I can think back when I did my first degree before law. I did. Um, I studied politics. Uh, as a first degree, and I always remember reading the you know the English Constitution by Walter Waggett, uh, eighteen sixty seven, uh, you know uh, a very classic text. And Baggett said, above all things, our royalty is to be revered, uh, and if you begin to poke about it, you can't give it reverence. Its mystery is in its life. We we must not let in daylight upon magic. So that was 1867, and I remember reading all this and thinking, you know, we're taught, you know, when I studied constitutional law, uh, that actually we have a constitutional monarchy, uh, but all the powers, you know, the prerogative powers and so on and so forth, aren't really, you know, they're, they're there to be exercised in the interest of the state, the UK, um, but it's not something um, that effectively, you know, is, is of for personal uh, advantage, for example. What we then discover, and we've talked about this uh, today, it's far more complicated than that. Yeah. Actually, you know, yes, the, 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 the royal family is above the law. They're exempt from many laws. They get to veto all sorts of things they don't like. They get to decide how to take money from the, the, the public purse when they like. And none of this is particularly transparent. Uh, and there's not really... It seems there's not a lot we can do about this. And it's an astonishing abuse, I think. Yeah. And and I think it sits at the very pinnacle of all that's wrong in our society. Yeah. Because it, as you say, talking about you know hereditary power as being an atma, well, everything flows from that. Absolutely. You know, people taking knighthoods, people taking, yeah. you know, gongs, yeah. um, all of that helps, I think, to solidify yeah. the hegemony of, of of this whole institution. The one thing I wanted to ask you, John, because I've been giving this some thought, I've been mulling this one over. <clears throat> we have a philosophical question. Don't you think that our system of monarchy, the coronation uh, on Saturday, and indeed our system of honours, do you think that that espouses the seven deadly sins? <laughs> now, before you reply to me, uh, and just think, think this one Which over, one? right? Well, well, indeed. But So the seven deadly sins go back to pre-Christian times. In fact, they can be traced back to the 4th century um, uh, with ancient Greek philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle. Because it was only in the 6th century AD that Pope Gregory revised them, um, and they became the common form of the seven deadly sins as we know them now. Even Dante Alighieri, the, the, remember the, the famous Italian uh, poet and, and, and writer, in his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, I think it's the second book, he traverses the seven deadly sins uh, as, as a concept of purgatory uh, you know, and hell. And so what we have is lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, envy, pride. And I'll come around to this one when I get a chance. 
Sloth. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing, right? Let me put this to you. Um, one could make a case, surely, that the, that the institution of the monarchy itself and indeed the coronation encapsulates greed and lust. The wealth of that institution, the civilist, the, mm -hmm. the various cash for access scandals that we've yep. had over the mm -hmm. years, gluttony, the palaces, uh, the servants, and the way that they're treated, they're treated appallingly often. I mean, we these stories seep out into the press from time to time. Indeed, mm -hmm. um, when 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 King Charles was signing uh, his, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, when yeah. he was when he was ascending, yeah. I remember the, the the scene with the pen yeah. and the, the poor servant, the, exp the expensive fountain pen, the expensive fountain pen. <laughs> Apparently, they could be very popular. Um, some politicians like them too. Who oh, did you know? Did you know, Mike? Sorry to interrupt. The the if. Uh, if if a member of the royal family, let's say Prince Edward or one of these guys, opened a let's say for example they opened a a hardware store in Govan, you yeah. know, Uncle Pete's hardware store that sold say fridge freezers and and pens <laughs> and then razor blades and garden equipment <laughs> and and all those types of things, you know. Uh, when he when he opens it and you see them shaking hands, he's, they're trained to say. And what do you do? Yes, that's what they say. And what do you do? <laughs> and and you I'm do? not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uncle Pete would have an answer for that. <laughs> so well, anyway, sorry. No, 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 no. Let's come back to the seven deadly sins. Sloth. Mm -hmm. That's another one. Um, <laughs> many of the royal families, as you see, the hangers on. Mm -hmm. um, I think yes. There's ones that you know, like Princess Anne, do lots of public uh, events and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But quite a lot of them are effectively. Uh, doing very, very little, mm -hmm. uh, but are, are on the coattails of this massive enterprise. And then finally, and they do say that this is the father and promoter of all other sins, and this is pride. Mm. Pride has been labelled one of the devil's most essential traits. An irrational belief, John, mm. that you are better, superior, mm. more important mm -hmm. than anybody else, mm -hmm. almost godlike. Mm -hmm. And you refuse to acknowledge any limits, faults, or wrongs. Some may say that, that to think like that might be pathological. But if you think about pride, surely the coronation is itself the most vainglorious, obscene indulgence costing a quarter of a billion pounds. So I put it to you, John. <laughs> I've identified five deadly sins yeah. that I think the institution of the monarchy fall into. What's your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> I'm not sure about lust. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that one. Okay, we're not. But, Prince Andrew? But, oh, that's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's interesting when you were saying earlier on about, uh, you know, the royal family, the, 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 I can't remember who it was you quoted, but the, that had said that it's basically something that, uh, you know that's there. It shouldn't be looked at too closely. Walter and Baggett. Walter Baggett, and 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 that you know that that's been around as well. I mean, I'm going back to honestly, kind of Thomas Paine, Robert mm. Burns, even you know people like that that were around just you know before the French Revolution, the American kind of War of Independence. They were saying exactly these things. You know that that you know it, because it's always there, or because it's always been there, uh, it's it's accepted. 
you know. And Thomas Paine actually said the idea of hereditary sovereignty is as inconsistent as hereditary judges or hereditary juries. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's a. We, we just accept that our head of state should be, you know, a, a, should inherit that title. Yeah. But you know. The point he's making is, well, if you accept that, well, why why don't you accept hereditary judges, hereditary juries? And there's no other head of state, Mike, that I'm aware of anyway, certainly in the in the kind of developed kind of Western kind of democratic kind of axis, that is above the law. No. In the way that we're talking here. You know, do you think Macron doesn't pay tax? Do you think, I mean, Trump's getting indicted. I know he's not head of state anymore. Clinton yeah. was investigated when he was head of state in America. You know, so this idea that the order, the, 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 he's the head of state and he should he's, he should be entitled to these privileges, sorry, it just doesn't wash. And it didn't wash. And, you know, taxes imposed, or tax breaks, if you like, or, or ta taxation as is an issue imposed by the, um, the the British Crown on America at the time was, was one of the major uh, contributors to the American War of Independence. Well, the you Americans know. got it right, didn't they? I mean, I mean, the Americans thought, hang on a second here, we're not standing for this nonsense. Yeah. And yet, we, the public, you know, the British public, the, the Scottish public, have have this this system which is just incredible. Now, we're coming towards the end of the show, John, and I, I, I know you know I'm a, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, so I wanted, we've been going into all the kind of negative aspects of the institution of the monarchy. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to end on a, it could be worse note, if, if that's of assistance. Mm -hmm. Now, a few years ago, 60 historical writers uh, were surveyed in a poll. Who's the worst ever king that we ever had uh, mm -hmm. in, in these island lands? And King, uh, not monarch. Uh, well, ki king, king. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, the winner, if winner is the right word, <laughs> King was George, is that? <laughs> Henry VIII. Henry VIII, yeah. Henry VIII was criticised uh, for a wide range of crimes, and literally, I think the word crime yeah. applied. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a light way of describing it. He was obsessive, uh, syphilitic, um, self-indulgent wife murderer, and tyrant. Now, that was just some of the, the crimes. Uh, the Tudor king had been described as a gross man-child, woefully and capriciously dangerous to everything around him, including the country. He's, he's a good fox hunter, though. He barely made it out of infancy, let alone adolescence, <laughs> and ruled with little more policy than petulant self-gratification. Oh, dear. Right. Now, I just simply put to you, John, yeah. uh, it could always be worse, can't it? Well, what, what I would like to do, Mike, before we finish, is maybe introduce a, a podcast further down the line that we should do, which is, you know, should Scotland become a republic? Is it how? Where does that yeah. feature in yeah. independence debate? Because it's you know we've got a so-called republican first minister going down to this coronation, and you're just thinking, hmm, you know. I think that's a great idea, John, and I look forward to yeah. to talking. And we can think about maybe getting a, some more guests on. So yeah. until then, okay, Mike. Thank you very much.